Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Welcome to another edition of Between the Lines with Virtual Academy, where a podcast going beyond the badge to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. I'm your co-host, Brent Henson, and something tells me that we may play a part in prolonging the long-standing rivalry between police officers and firemen in this episode, but with good reason and for a great cause, as our guest today will not only talk about his career in law enforcement, but he's also going to talk about a fantastic fundraiser that's going to be coming up a little later on this year. But before we bring our guest in, allow me to introduce our host. He is... Mr. Michael Warren, how are you, sir? You, you know, you, you and I were talking before we started recording, and I think you're, you're starting to understand because I'm older than you, but daylight savings time hits me, hits me hard, and it takes me much longer to recover from it, man. I uh, will say two things. Number one, yes, you're correct. And number two, I have to call you out because you put the S on the end of savings. You're not opening a bank account. It's daylight saving time. I'm a stickler for that every year. And I stand corrected. And that's probably because of the, I don't want to say holiday, uh, because this curse that's been induced upon America by making us change Walmarts like that. Myers, Kmarts, (laughs) Kroger's. (laughs) Yes. Put an S on everything. Exactly. Not only does daylight savings time, daylight saving time make me feel old, but uh, I don't know if you watch much in the way of sports, but oftentimes nowadays I find myself cheering for certain players who happen to be the sons of, of players I cheered for before, and nothing will oh, ma- yeah, nothing yeah. will make you feel older than seeing second, third generation uh, professional athletes. See, I feel that way when I watch uh, WWE wrestling. <laughs> I guess we could loosely call that a sport, uh, but loosely. <laughs> 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 but but today we're we're going to be talking to a guy who happens to be the son of a very good friend of mine. And as I was getting ready for the podcast, I was reflecting that when you're doing that type of interview, that's just another indication that you're old. So that that's where I stand today. So why don't you go ahead and introduce him and let's bring him on before I forget why we're talking to him. Okay. Well, our guest today uh, just entered his 12th year with the Mesquite, Texas Police Department, where he's worked in patrol, served as a member of the SWAT team, and acted as one of the department's field training officers. Currently, he's assigned as the school resource officer at North Mesquite High School. We actually get to talk to him today because uh, this week he's on spring break, which worked out for us. Uh, He's also on the board of directors for the Guns and Hoses Foundation of North Texas, love that name. Uh, That's a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing immediate financial assistance to the families of fallen police officers and firefighters lost in the line of duty. It is our pleasure to welcome Rick Mitchell to the podcast. How are you, sir? I'm doing all right. How are you guys doing? Excellent. I'm going to call you Rick today. Okay. Normally when I'm talking to your dad about you, we call you junior just to make things a little bit easier, but today you're Rick. Okay. And that works for me. What's funny is that I'm not technically a junior, you know, we just, we kind of go by that senior junior. It just makes it easier, man. And you know, uh, you and I were talking earlier, (laughs) earlier today, and uh, we we also clarified that you are the good looking one of the two. Absolutely. I don't think there's a doubt about that. (laughs) There's definitely no contest, (laughs) but man, we really appreciate you being here today and uh, spending some of your spring break. (laughs) with between the lines i'm going to start with kind of what i started a lot of these episodes with what was it that drew you to the law enforcement profession well for me i uh, grew up with it in my family right Uh, my dad was a law enforcement officer for about 30 years so i grew up with him as a cop and uh, just watching him do his thing and hanging around the police department and it's something that i knew i always wanted to do even from a very young age. So uh, just growing up with it is really what kind of led me in that direction. Now, uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but my co-host Brent is also originally from the state of Michigan. You know, my dad, my dad did mention that, I mm-hmm. believe, um, when he told me about what you guys were doing. Yeah, but, so. but he, like you, 
he left uh, as soon as he could for whatever. I got out of Dodge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, turned eighteen. I was like, I'm, I'm gone. See you guys. <laughs> well, see, that's kind of like what you did, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, eighteen years old. As soon as I graduated high school, I literally moved down here to the Dallas area about three weeks after my graduation. So as quickly as I could. <laughs> did you also find a college girl who wouldn't let you leave the state? Because that's what happened to me. <laughs> No, didn't do that. I waited till I moved down here to find mine. You get down there and you decide this is the career path that you want to take. You started your career uh, not as a police officer, but I think you you call it, is it a detention officer? Yeah, that's right. So in Texas, uh, I think in Michigan, it's like correctional officer. Uh, In Texas, it's refers to as a detention officer. Same thing. Uh, Basically, I got hired at 18 years old by the Mesquite Police Department to be a detention officer. And, uh, of course, you have to be 21 to be a cop. So I did my time uh, as a detention officer, and then I took the uh, civil service exam for police officer about two weeks after my 21st birthday. And I just want to point out, again, we've said this several times on our podcast, the experience you gain in detention and in corrections it really does help prepare you for when you get out on the road because you learn, especially at 18, you may be lacking some of those communication skills. That type of experience has to go a lot better than perhaps working in a restaurant or a retail store. Oh, absolutely. Because you, uh, I mean, you're thrown into the fire, right? You're dealing with inmates, you're, you're booking people in, you're fingerprinting people. You're learning how to talk the talk and walk the walk, you know, Uh, especially for me at a very young age at 18, doing that, certainly prepared me for the career that I, I knew I wanted to, to be in. So any additional experience on top of, you know, the academy and all the training that you get when you become an officer, certainly I've, I viewed as beneficial, which is why I ultimately chose to, to do what I did. I think it would be important for all law enforcement officers to understand the impact that the way that they handle somebody that it, the impact it has on the contact that is going on between the correctional detention officer and that person that's been arrested because you can either prime them to cooperate or you can prime them to not cooperate. Yeah, you can. So what's what I always told the rookies that I've trained is, is you can talk your way into a fight as quickly as you can talk your way out of a fight. And that applies to both correctional officers and police officers. I mean, communication is absolutely key. And a lot of people will respond better to you if you communicate with them in a, you know, in a proper way, really. And, and you know, the, the sad thing is uh, you may not be the one that gets talked into a fight. You can handle somebody incorrectly on the road, and the person who may end up fighting with the inmate is somebody in corrections that had nothing to do, nothing whatsoever to do with how they got there. Absolutely. And then, you know, you talk about all the factors, you know, the intoxication level, narcotics, all that stuff get introduced, and that's when people start acting different you know, and more abnormal than they would. So, so I've got to ask you this uh, because you and I, we went reverse order. Okay. You left the North and went to work in the South. Uh, I left the South and went to work in the North. And, and when I first started working in law enforcement in Michigan, people made fun of my accent. Did you have any similar experience uh, uh, when you first started working in Texas? I did, yes, uh, but I was also 18 when I moved down here. So, I, and I've, I'm 33 now. So, uh, I know cops they say aren't great at math, but <laughs> I have been down here. 2023 will be my 15th year here in Texas, and I, I feel like I have maybe unintentionally adopted some of the uh, Texas lingo. But do you still say pop? I, you know, I call it what it is. I, I don't really say pop. Um, I don't say coke. See, down here it's all coke, but up north it's pop. So. Right. And I, I don't really even say Coke a whole, I call it what it is, to be honest. I'm not, uh, the, the pop, whenever I hear pop now, I'm like, you must be from up North. You know, where, where are you from? Because I'm from Michigan. You know, but, you, know you talk about how you can just as easily talk yourself out of a fight as you can into a fight. Uh, using the word pop down South is, is a good way to talk yourself into a fight. Well, yeah. Cause they'll look at you like, what the hell are you talking about? You know, it's called Coke or Dr. That's Pepper, right. you know, like that's, that's all that there is that and sweet tea. And we're good to go. We got everything yeah. we need right there. There you go. There but, you go. Well, you know, you tested for and you, you became a police officer, went to the academy and you went through training. Your dad, I always like stealing his stuff because it's so good. But he says, you know, being a cop is like having a front seat to the greatest show on earth. And I'm sure you've heard him say that. But when you actually got to start living it, were you just like, man, dad, he knew what he was talking about. 
Oh, absolutely. You know, and hearing the stories that I would hear from him and growing up around that environment, you know, you kind of knew maybe a little bit about what to expect. But until you actually sit in that driver's seat, patrolling a beat, answering calls and doing your own thing is when you really get to see it. I can't tell you how many moments I had and still have really to this day where I'm like, holy shit, I can't believe they pay me to do this, you know? (laughs) Yep. And then you stay extra and they give you overtime. It's like, what? This is like a jackpot right here. In Texas here, um, they pay us really well, which is one of the draws to why I moved down here to begin my law enforcement career as opposed to staying in Michigan was because Texas as a state pays its police officers very well. well. And Texas also seems to be a state that supports it's law enforcement, not not just monetarily, but with, you know, psychological and emotional. I mean, it, it seems like cops are still the good guys in the state of Texas. Absolutely. We get a lot of support from um, local government, state government. It's definitely, you know, Texas is is a, a red state. Right. So, you know, we get a we get a lot of a lot of support from the government for sure. Now you're working patrol. And if I'm not mistaken, you also eventually made it to the SWAT team. Yes. What made you decide that, you know what, that seems like something worth doing? Well, going back, I mean, so I I finished um, field training when I was still 21 years old. And, you know, you got to be at the department for 18 months before you can apply to be on SWAT. So 18 months put me at 22 years old. So I was still young and uh, basically living and breathing the police work, right? So uh, I went ahead and applied and tested and went through SWAT school and and made it. It's just something that I wanted to do. Just the uh, excitement, high intense uh, situations, just things that an ordinary patrol officer doesn't get to deal with. You know, it's just being in those situations uh, seemed really appealing. And I will say this about being on SWAT. uh, It really made me a better officer with all the training, all the shooting, the techniques, the tactics certainly made me uh, a much better officer, and I'd be forever grateful for that experience. You, you just reminded me of a meme I saw the other day that says, I went out uh, yesterday and ran two minutes, but came back because I forgot something. And what, what I forgot was that I'm old and I'm fat and I can't run for any more than two minutes. But that wasn't the case for you <laughs> when you became a, a, a the SWAT guy, right? Yeah, uh, I, I spent uh, six to eight months preparing and getting into the best physical shape of my life. And I was only 22 years old, so I was still obviously physically in good shape. But that just the training that I did to prepare for it uh, really kind of put it over the top. The reason I'm, I'm asking these things right here is because I think that those on specialty teams like that, they often have a, a deeper understanding of you can't take anything for granted. You can't take anything at face value because that's going to come into play here in a minute in a story we're going to talk about. But that's one of the things that they really emphasize on these special teams is you can't take something for granted, can't take it at face value. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. You have to go into it always with the, the worst possible scenario in your mind. Um, as that's kind of what we're taught as cops, you know, from the academy is, you know, keep the the worst case in mind and be prepared to deal with that, but always have a plan. I would bet your experience will confirm this, is that when you go in like that right there, prepared for the worst, when you don't need it, it's easier to come down than to go in down here thinking everything's going to be, you know, low key, and then having to ramp up. The downward trajectory is much easier. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you guys have mentioned this book a couple of times on your uh, on your podcast, uh, Left a Bang. Uh, that's a book that, you know, scientifically describes that, you know, is why it's it's much easier to come down than it is to ramp up. And so certainly if, if you go in with with the mindset that the worst case is, you know, possible or potential to happen, then it just makes uh, dealing with the things a lot easier when it doesn't end up worst case. If anybody who's listened to this podcast knows uh, I'm a trainer by trade and by heart. And uh, you, you mentioned it just a minute ago that all the training that you got made you a better cop. The power of training cannot be overstated in uh, preparing you to make the ups and downs that are necessary based upon what the call dictates that you do. Yeah, it's it's always better to be overtrained than undertrained. And so you you can really never have enough training, you know, law enforcement training. There's so many different avenues you can take in classes with, you know, particular specialties. 
Um, and, and I've been fortunate in my experience as, as an officer to really kind of uh, dabble in a lot of different trainings, uh, anywhere from SWAT to traffic to patrol classes to communication classes to leadership classes. You know, just you got to be the more training you have, the more well-rounded you will be as an officer. And, and this is what I think is lost a lot of times. Not only are you better off, but your partners are better off. The agency is better off and the public is better off. Absolutely. It's a team effort. And the more individuals that you have that are willing to put the time and effort in to get learned and get trained, certainly the better off the, the department as a whole will be. All right. Kind of go into the story that, that we had talked about, because I think this, this, this story has so many facets to it that I think I want to take a little time here. The incident we're going to talk about, I think it happened in 2019. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. December 2019. Okay. And it's important that you understand December because what was the assignment that you had uh, at the time of the incident? So that specific day, um, I my primary assignment was patrol officer, but I was working overtime as a retail deployment unit. Now, just for some context, the city of Mesquite, Texas, we border Dallas on the southeast side. And it's about uh, 48 square miles, a little over 150,000 people. So it's a pretty decent size, uh, you know, suburb of Dallas. And we have a major uh, retail area that is split by a major highway. All right. So there's basically four quadrants of the retail section, you know, uh, sectors, right, that we break it up into. So this particular day, I was working the northeast sector. Uh, a lot of major stores in that sector. Uh, the one that I was just patrolling was uh, Academy Sports and Outdoors, which is, um, you know, a sporting goods store similar to like Dick's Sporting Goods. Why did your agency deploy these extra assets uh, at that time of the year? So we do it every year. Uh, it's it's a great source of overtime, but realistically, you know, between Black Friday and Christmas, that's the heaviest days for uh, retail shopping. Being that we are a massive uh, retail city in that particular part of town, we get a lot of lot of traffic, a lot of a lot of people. All the parking lots are always full, so the department employs, you know, overtime basically to fill each quadrant of the retail sectors every day between Black Friday and Christmas Eve, from eight a.m. until ten p.m. Not only is there increased shopping, there's also increased what crime. There's increased crime, <laughs> and so as we were talking about this. I thought it was really important because you said, now, Mike, its emphasis is on the prevention of the crime. You know, we respond to the calls, but ideally the calls don't happen because we have high visibility in the area. Right. Uh, the whole purpose is high visibility patrol because a lot of things can be prevented with uh, with with visible police officers. And so, yes, we still get the theft calls that come out, but uh, the primary focus is to handle everything in your retail sector, which includes being visible, driving around, checking on things that, you know, are suspicious or that aren't supposed to be there and just, just, you know, being visible really. And that prevents more than you could probably imagine. I guess the thing that people struggle with is how do you quantify crimes that you prevented? And because there's no real way of measuring that, but it's a necessary part of law enforcement. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately, the less calls you go on that day means the more successful you were at being visible and preventing. So that's kind of how you gauge your success in that. Yeah. But let me throw it out there for any elected officials who may be listening there. When we have success like that, then you can't turn around and penalize the agency for reduction in crime, because often that will happen uh, with staffing levels. When we see reduction in crime, the elected officials will say, well, we don't need as many police officers in. And so we have to be careful when we're successful that we're not penalized for that. Right. Well, and I know I know what my job is. That's to show up and go to work and, <laughs> and do my job. Yeah. So, uh, it, you know, if, if they like what they see in terms of the results from our preventative patrol, from the high visibility retail enforcement, uh, deployment, as we call it, uh, then I'm going to keep working it as long as they keep putting it out. Absolutely. But you're driving around that day and you're in the Academy parking lot. What was it you saw that kind of drew your attention? So I was just patrolling Academy Sports parking lot. I just, uh, this is common with every, you know, the mall, all of the other major stores, just drive through and look at uh, the handicap parking spaces to see if there's any violations that, that you could potentially cite or handle up on. And so I, this particular day, I observed uh, an SUV with a Louisiana license plate parked in one of the very front 
parking spots. That was a handicap spot. The car itself did not have any visible handicap placard displayed. As you and I were talking about this before, we as human beings often try to rationalize away these anomalies. And I think when you were talking, you go, well, you know, he's from Louisiana. Maybe he didn't know. And then what what did you say to yourself after you realized you said that? Yeah, I'm like, well, they still have handicapped parking spaces in Louisiana. (laughs) And they still have handicapped placards that they must display when they're parked in a handicapped spot. So it doesn't matter what state you're in, you know, those, those handicapped placards exist. But it, it just goes to show human nature is to try and explain away those things that are out of the ordinary. If you had allowed yourself to accept that explanation, then, then what happened after would, would not have happened afterward. Correct. Yeah. I just, it was something about it. Um, whether it wasn't that busy that day or it's just something, uh, it, it wasn't uncommon for me to park and sit and wait for the occupants to come out at, at other stores too. This, that's literally what we get paid to do is be visible, write tickets, etc. And this particular day, I chose to park uh, a little little away from the vehicle and monitor the, the exit doors until two individuals walked up to uh, this particular vehicle. There's another podcast that I really like called Left of Greg, and they often talk about looking for those things that are out of the ordinary, because oftentimes people will park in handicapped spots because they're lazy. But there's also another potential reason why somebody might be inclined to park illegally near the front of a store, and that's because they're committing a crime. Want to make a fast getaway. Eventually, somebody comes back to the car. What happened then? Yeah, so it's a, it's a male and female, adult male, adult female that walk to the car. The female is holding an infant child. Uh, they arrive at the car, open the doors, and uh, get in. So at this time, I've already moved my, my patrol vehicle up. I've positioned it. I've parked behind them, basically blocked them into the spot. Uh, I get out. The male was in the driver's seat, and as I'm approaching, he actually steps out of the car and walks back towards me, which was indicator number one for me that something was a little bit different about this. Okay, well, first of all, why would that be an indicator to you that something was a little bit different, the fact that he got out and came to you? Well, so typically, um, like say a traffic stop, for example, uh, we are the ones, officers are the ones that approach the people in the vehicle. So it's it's not as common for uh, somebody sitting in a car already to get out and approach an officer. They're just That's one of the behavioral clues that I kind of, honed in on there was was that his behavior was different from the baseline by itself is not everything but it is something you need to pay attention to so he walks back to you and what transpired between the two of you there so i asked him i said hey man you got a handicap placard you're, you're parked in a handicap spot he said no i don't and i said okay well i'm gonna need to see your id he's like well i don't have that either i was like okay well what's your name so i wrote his name and birthday down told him to go ahead and hang out in his car and I'd be back with him in just a minute. So I take that info back to my squad. I'm sitting in there. I got my door propped open and uh, I'm sitting there running him on the radio dispatch. You know, I've, I've given him the license plate and I've now run his information on NCIC just waiting for a return. Well, as I'm waiting and this whole process, you know, me running his name and all that probably took only a couple of minutes. Like we're not talking about a, a substantial time. And so in that time, he actually got back out of his car and walked up to my door uh, of my squad car as I'm sitting in the car. And he said, hey, am I good to go? And I said, nope, you're not. Go back and sit in your car, which, again, was behavior indicator number two. Not only has he approached me once, he's approached me twice after I already told him to wait. So uh, I I really knew something was up at that point. And after I told him to go back and sit in his car... Uh, dispatch hit me up on the radio saying, hey, just for your, you know, just basically the registration that you gave us, Louisiana license plate, that car shows stolen out of the New Orleans Police Department in New Orleans, Louisiana. When you get that return, what happens to the blood pressure? It's, uh, it's, uh, it goes to an unhealthy level. <laughs> we'll say that. It's a good so, thing. It's a good thing you're young and we're in shape, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, and that's, that's even more, more, uh, of a key factor here in just a minute. So I, you know, I'm, anytime you hear that, I was like, oh shit, you know, so I get up, I, I walk to the back, uh, driver's side back fender. Uh, he was sitting in the driver's seat. His feet were on the, on the pavement. So he was kind of sitting sideways his door was open and there was a car parked in the adjacent parking space. So I knew he couldn't take off running to the right. So I called him out of the car back towards me. I contacted him at the back bumper 
And I said, turn around. You know, I, I grabbed his left arm. And as soon as I did that to try and get him in cuffs, he just bolted, took off running. Let me pause you there for a second. A lot of people who aren't on the job, uh, I don't think they realize how dangerous the initial contact, I'm, I'm talking about initial physical contact, where you tell someone, turn around, put your hands behind your back, and you lay a hand on them. And, and it's, it's yep. not a use of force at this point, but if, if something is going to go sideways, that's one of the most likely times that it's going to happen. Absolutely. And it's a busy season uh, and there's people shopping, right? Yeah. No, it's and this Academy Sports is right off uh, one of our, our major roadways. And so, I mean, it, it was right in the middle of the day, too. I want to say it was probably uh, just after one in the afternoon, maybe. And the other thing, too, just to try and set the scene for, for somebody who's never been there and done that. Not, not only do you have him, but you also have a female and an infant in the car as well. You've got shoppers walking by which are distractions. You've got this other person in the car. You've got him acting all hinky. And, and as soon as you put a hand on him, he bolts. What happens next? So we run through the parking lot, pretty much all the way across it. And uh, he hops out onto the main road itself and starts running in a lane of traffic. So, uh, of course, I'm right there behind him. I end up, the nearest major intersection is where I caught him. So we're only talking, you know, a couple hundred feet, maybe several hundred, 300 feet max, probably by the time I caught him um, and tackled him. We ended up into some bushes right there on the curb, like in the intersection and was able to, uh, you know, physically wrestle with him for a minute to get him into custody. It was around that time where more off, of course, I'm on the radio the whole time, right? Uh, they had cover officers flying in. So by the time I tackled him and was wrestling with him is when other officers started showing up. So I was able to get him in custody right there in the bushes. When somebody bolts like that on you, okay, you got to remember you're wearing your gear. Okay. It's not like, it's not like you're wearing your running outfit. You've got your belt on, you got your vest on. And then in the middle of that, you're expected to talk on the radio in such a manner that people can understand what it is you're saying. And, and, and remember what's happened to the blood pressure already, you know, it, it's skyrocketing. Yeah. But, but when you catch them, it, it has to be what it feels like when you catch that trophy fish, you know, when you've been battling this fish for any get that monster on board yeah, right here, but you get him in custody, right? Yep. And so what happens after that? So we, uh, we search him, you know, just do the initial search uh, of his person and recovered some clothing, uh, that still had Academy price tags on him. So we, we get him, we take the clothing and he gets shipped off. Well, another officer took him to the jail all right, just to start the book in process with him. Uh, and other officers at this time, at the, all this was going on simultaneously. Other officers went back to the stolen car and observed that it was unoccupied. But another officer located the, the woman and the infant at the adjacent store next door, contacted her. She had a bunch of clothing with Academy tags on it, too. So we collected all the clothes. There was also some more clothing in the car that had Academy tags. So we took all the clothing back inside, verified that. It was about a little over $200 worth of uh, sports clothing. The store verified as stolen that they had no idea had been taken. Um, so basically, uh, I interrupted a theft in progress that uh, the store had no idea was even happening, which goes back to your point about why they parked in the handicapped spot in the first place. Well, it's interesting to me when you look at the story as a whole and all the things that were going on and the myriad of things that you had going on, you know, the spike in blood pressure. Now you've got this physical exertion, you have this physical encounter, and now you had to find a way to bring everything back down and actually conduct an, a, a logical, rational, thorough investigation. That's difficult to do because there's an emotional content to this. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, your, your, your blood pressure is still uh, unreasonably high and you're sweating, um, you know, you, your, your adrenaline, uh, that's a real thing, you know, and um, you're, you're amped up and that adrenaline crash, you know, after kind of it's, it's been sitting for a while is a real thing too. But, you know, trying to come down off of that and still figure out what all you had, what offenses were there, uh, that kind of stuff. If you've been doing the job longer period of time, it becomes a little easier, but it's still it's still not something that's you know entirely natural to battle those type of emotions 
and physiological things and, and still work. See, I, I understand their mentality of, okay, I'm going to park in a handicapped spot. I'm closer to the door, faster getaway. But they're putting a, a target on themselves because if they had not done this, they probably, I'm assuming they, they probably would have gotten away, right? Yeah, well, Mike and I talked about that earlier, actually. Uh, you know, that's that's probably a fair statement. If they would have parked in a regular parking spot uh, in the middle of the parking lot, say, I, I did not have license plate scanners on my car that automatically scan LPs. Uh, not to say I couldn't have run it, but typically, you know, out-of-state tags are a little harder to run. So uh, <laughs> chances are I would have driven right by and wouldn't have even given that a second thought. So, yeah, he basically drew attention to himself. Brent, it's funny because he is absolutely correct. In most cases, if you want to run an out-of-state driver's license, you do it over there with dispatch because it's such a pain in the butt to run a license plate from another state on your system because not all the systems are the same. They require different information and in different order. Uh, you know, nah, screw it. <laughs> I'm not going to run that one. When you go back, you not only found clothes, what else did you find in that stolen vehicle? Well, so before before we, we located this, basically, we, we also located narcotics on the mail that, that ran from me. He had um, some marijuana and some methamphetamine on him as well. So he had two different types of narcotics on him, some stolen clothing. And then when we inventoried the car, we actually found a loaded pistol underneath the driver's seat, which is where he was hanging out, which is why, you know, he came to me both of the times that he did. He did not want me near that car to, to find that firearm. So the firearm was loaded. It had one round in the chamber. It was ready to go. When people try to distract you from what it is that you do, it's a good practice to assume that they're trying to hide something that you haven't discovered yet. And it doesn't always mean that you get to because we have to do things within the bounds of the law. You know, we're restricted by by search and seizure laws and the Constitution, and all kinds of stuff like that. But as law enforcement officers, we need to recognize that when they're trying to draw our attention to one place, that that probably means there's another place that needs to be looked at. Absolutely. And I mean, he had, he literally had everywhere you could, inside the car there was stolen clothing. He had the firearm underneath the driver's seat. He had drugs on him. He had stolen clothing on him. I mean, he was concealing it pretty much every imaginable place you could within the realm of, of what he was working with. And then the case doesn't end that day. You do your paperwork and you, you, you submit it. A little bit in the future, you got another notification, didn't you? Yeah. So, well, for those of you counting at home, I actually charged him with seven offenses, all right? He was a convicted felon previously, oddly enough, for evading arrest. So he Imagine clearly that. is not very, yeah, he's not very good at that. So I'll, I'll give him that. But I charged him with unlawful possession of a firearm by a felon, unauthorized use of a motor vehicle because the car was stolen, evading arrest. He had the two drug charges, the meth and the marijuana, then, of course, the theft, when all this was said and done, dispatch also let me know that he had an active warrant out of the New Orleans Police Department for robbery. So uh, he was a wanted felon, had a firearm in a stolen car. And uh, so that was his seven charges. Would you classify him as, in, as a jack of all trades? Because it sounds like his criminal activity went the full spectrum, didn't it? Yeah, he the, the seven new new charges <laughs> that I put on him, or the six new plus the one warrant, uh, certainly hit quite the uh, quite the full range there. That's why we have a police academy right there. There you go. Yeah, that this is a good one to study if you're trying to figure out what you can charge somebody <laughs> with, because I pretty much hit him with everything I could. But then you, later on, you got uh, a notification. Uh, what was that one all about? Yeah, so this was, of course, we had the gun in our property room, and ATF gets notified when we store guns. Maybe about a month or so after this arrest, I get a notification from the ATF, and it said that the firearm that this guy had had been used in a homicide in Louisiana shortly before uh, I had arrested him. That's one of those things that when you start looking at the past history of some of these firearms, they're not necessarily always used by the same person, but the guns are used in a variety of crimes. We like to refer to it as the pucker factor. Uh, I would imagine that the pucker factor, even though it was a month in the past, was a little bit there like son of a gun. You know, that, that, was, that was a good one there. Yeah, we talked about this earlier. I mean, the, the, the humor in this story is that literally was just a parking violation that turned into this avalanche 
of a disaster, you know, with, with everything that, I mean, he had just committed a theft, he had narcotics, he had a firearm, he had a warrant for a violent felony, like, this dude, I mean, all stemmed from me marking out on a parking violation. I want to emphasize this for any young officers who may be listening, not looking at it as only a parking violation, being willing to take those lawful encounters that you have with people out there and actually conducting an investigation. Most of them, you're not going to come up with anything other than a handicapped parking violation in this case. But when you find the one, I always tell people the 99 times that you do it and you don't get anything, that's the price of admission for the one time that you do it and you get something. But you're not going to get you're not going to get to that one until you do the rest of them. Yeah, and I could have easily just wrote a ticket and slapped it on the windshield and left it and driven off to the next parking lot. That's a $300, actually about a $500 ticket. So I could have easily just left that on the on the windshield and uh, driven next door to, to Target, you know. Uh, but I stayed there and waited for, uh, for the occupant to walk out, and then it turned into this. You know, I mean, this was you know, obviously uh, one of my more memorable arrests in my career, for sure. But it all starts with an agency that recognizes that, hey, we have these issues. It's predictable. And so we're going to go out, we're going to try to prevent it. And deploying resources in the right place at the right time. And not only deploying resources, but deploying the right resources. Uh, Because you have to have somebody that wants to go out there and get into things. Uh, Because intercepting, interrupting a larceny like you did, it's not fun. Doing inventory on a bunch of stolen gear, that's not fun. If that would have been all that it was but it's necessary as part of our profession. Yeah. And like with every, it seemed like almost every couple of minutes that went by in this call, like more and more things just kept unfolding and and allowing us to turn this into from a theft arrest on a parking violation to, you know, stolen car, gun, uh, warrant, you know, a whole bunch of narcotic stuff that, it just was like one step at a time. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I didn't know any of this when I was sitting there waiting for him to walk out would have would have you could have given me a million guesses about what was going to happen as the outcome of this and i would not have told you exactly what happened would have happened so i'm assuming the, the female got charged as well um what happens with the infant child so we did actually um we filed that case at large because we didn't want to remove the child from the mom uh, for a property crime. So what we did is I, I got all her information, of course, through her name in the report, and uh, we went ahead and filed an at-large warrant for her to be arrested at a later time because all that she had was just the the theft charge. You know, it's funny how we work in the same profession, just in different states, but we call it different things. It, it's like we're all speaking English, but everybody's got their own dialect because in, in the state of Michigan, it'd be called an RPI, release pending issuance. Th- those things that you have to do but you were working patrol at the time, but uh, you're not working patrol right now. Tell me about your job assignment that you have right now. So my current assignment is a school resource officer, and I am uh, the school resource officer at North Mesquite High School. We actually have uh, five high schools in the city of Mesquite, six if you count our technical or trade high school. So I, I guess you could say six. We have six high schools, so it's a big city. I love it, man. Um, I put in for, this is my second school year as an SRO. And, um, you know, I just kind of put in for it on a whim, just try something new, something I hadn't done. And, uh, man, I didn't realize how much I'd, I'd love it. You know, just mentoring, uh, being a positive influence, uh, for the youth and, um, just kind of help change the, you know, perspective of what the kids or their parents might see law enforcement as and just being you know kind of a um, a bridge to connect the youth with positive influence and um, it's it's been really fun I really enjoy it we just recently had uh, Max on our podcast as a guest and Brent I just want to tell you knowing what I know about Rick this is the kind of officer I want in my kids school you know, I, th- this is the kind of guy that that uh, I don't have to worry about him writing things off and and not going to where the danger's at. This is a guy that's going to do his utmost best to protect the kids that he's been entrusted with, and that's what we need from our SROs. 
Yeah, I appreciate that, Mike. That means a lot. And, you know, I really do take pride in my job. And, um, you know, it's the school. Yeah, most SRO can be viewed potentially as an easy gig or somewhere that's, you know, they just kind of throw people or whatever. But that's that's really not the case. And um, it is what you make of it. If you put the time and effort in to really connect with the with the staff, the students and and be a a positive influence, you can really have an impact not only with the staff, but with the kids, too. It's been really, really good. And I listened to that episode, your, your last episode with Max, and for, for how we do it, uh, I do sit in on all of our behavioral threat assessments. I am a part of that. The staff wants me involved and, and values my input. And uh, so we, we do certainly do Mesquite PD and uh, the Mesquite Independent School District. We certainly work hand in hand to try and uh, make sure that school safety and security is, is a top priority. How did the uh, shooting in Ovalde last year affect you as an SRO? Was there anything that you had to go through or how did that personally come into your your career? Well, so Uvalde, of course, is is several hours away from Dallas, but it's still close enough to where, you know, it's uh, crap. It's it's right here. You know, this Uvalde didn't think it would be them. We don't think it's going to be us, but it might be us, you know, so um, just staying prepared, really. It didn't it didn't really change procedurally too much what what I do on a day to day basis. You know, I think the school district as a whole has really kind of ramped up their security checks daily. I like I know at at my school uh, we have four or five security guards that walk around and their sole function really is to check exterior doors, lock them and um, really just make sure that the school is even more secure than it used to be, right? And nobody unlocks doors for anybody other than, you know, people with keys and, and you know, all visitors are funneled through the front, you know, so it, it doesn't, it, it may have just enhanced security, I think, but procedurally for me as an SRO, you know, I, I know the thing with SRO is what I was saying, it's, it's pretty easy spot, but it's one of those where, if shit hits the fan at the school, it is your worst case nightmare. So there is an extreme liability with being an SRO because typically SROs only make the news, you know, when there's a school shooting. I think as a parent, that's the answer you want to hear. You want to hear is it affected us, but we already had our uh, procedures in place and we're proactive in making sure things like that don't happen. Yeah, absolutely. And we just, uh, you know, governing body of the school district's here locally in North Texas, they've been sending out um, random intruder audit people, basically uh, dressed in normal clothing. They have their credential that shows they're with the education agency or whatever, but uh, they've been showing up to different schools doing intruder audits is what they call them. And they they check, I think, um, 10 doors at each school and see if they can gain access. And if they do gain access, they just walk into the front office they don't try and contact anybody or anything like that. But our school had our, it's its unknown. You don't know when it's coming, right? So you got to be prepared. And our school, we have over 100 exterior doors. It's Ooh. just a complete, it's a jigsaw puzzle for a school. And we actually had our intruder audit uh, several weeks ago, maybe about a month or so maybe. And um, we passed, we were able to pass that. So that was big news for us, uh, given the layout of our school. Well, you know, Rick, my, my wife is an SRO, you know, talking to her about things that happen after school shootings, the one in Oxford, Uvalde and that, that type of thing. And, and the problem is, is it takes a while to build up that trust between you and the students at your school and you and the staff at the school and, and you with the parents of the kids at your school. And it's not necessarily that they don't trust you anymore. But there's still that that little hint of a doubt now. I have all the things that they've been doing. Is it just a show or are they really here to protect my kids? Right. Well, and that's that's why I approach being an SRO like I do. My office door is always open. I encourage kids to stop by, say hi. Parents, I always talk to the parents at, at all the sporting games that we have to work. You know, we, we're required to work all of our athletic games. And so I'm there. And so I, I, I communicate with the parents. Um, I'm visible around the building, walk around, talk to the staff. And so it's, it's, it takes a lot of work, you know, and, and realistically for an SRO specifically, you can sit in your office all day with your door shut. Then your job becomes 50% harder. But if you're out, if you're visible, if you're approachable, if you're relatable to the staff, relatable to the kids, 
your job becomes 50% easier, maybe more, but it's, it's, you know, it's, you get out of it, what you put into it. Well, and I think that a lot of cops should reconsider their perspective of SROs, because if you develop those relationships with the kids, then the kids oftentimes will speak on your behalf to the parents who maybe don't have that same perspective of you as a police officer. And they can say things to their parents that you, you could try to say, if they let you, but they may not believe. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, that's why I try and I try and communicate with the parents, you know, as much as I do the kids, quite honestly, uh, because parents live at home with the kids. And so if they're both on the same page about being able to, you know, freely communicate with me and trust me and and know that I'm going to help them with whatever they need help with, then that level of trust gets established both with the parent and the kid. And we're all on the same page. Uh, I want to thank you for the job because uh, Brent and I, we have conversations not only on the podcast, but we also talk regularly offline. And it is frustrating to us when we see a lack of protection for our most precious resource. I appreciate the fact that you're willing to provide that protection for them because that is what is needed. Absolutely. Well, and, and I'm a parent as well. I have three kids. My oldest is in kindergarten. So I got, uh, I got a zoo at home, but <laughs> my oldest is in kindergarten. And when I drop her off in the morning, every day before I go to work, I, I pray that everything is taken care of, you know, and that there's no issues at the school and that uh, our local ISD the city that we live in has a, as a school district police department, instead of the city cops working in the schools. And, um, I pray that they're, competent enough and able and willing to to do the job that they took an oath to do. Absolutely. You got three kids at the house. You're an SRO. Uh, it sounds like your, your plate's pretty daggone full, uh, but you being a glutton for punishment, you've just really made yourself this really, it's another full-time job almost, th- th- this work that you do involving the sport of hockey. What What's that all about? So, you know, I, I've played ice hockey growing up in Michigan. I've been playing since I was about eight. I just haven't stopped playing down here. Well, every year down here, there's what they call the Guns and Hoses Hockey Tournament. All right. It's cops and firemen. And, and I'll, I'll explain here more in a minute. But so I played in that for the first. I was like, you know, let's go ahead and play in it. Well, a couple years of playing in it. And, you know, everybody can recognize that I didn't grow up around here from my play, right? You know, they're like, yeah, you didn't grow up here, did you? No. So you're a ringer is what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) You can call it what you want. (laughs) Somehow that qualified me for, hey, would you like to take over running this tournament? And I'm like, "Um, I've never done anything like that, but let's give it a shot. So this was about seven, I think seven years ago, I took over. That, uh, by doing that, got me uh, a position on the board of directors for the Guns and Hoses Foundation of North Texas. And I am currently and have been for the last six or seven years served as the hockey director for the Guns and Hoses Foundation of North Texas. What's this event all about? I mean, are we talking about beer league, you know, four teams that get together on Thursday night? Well, what's it all about? Well, when I took over... Um, it was only 12 teams, and they were all public safety, either police and or fire. Now, uh, we've actually partnered, the Guns and Hoses Foundation, we've partnered with uh, Dallas Stars Tournaments. Uh, it's, it's Dallas Stars employees, uh, because all the local ice rinks around here are, are property of the Dallas Stars. And so they're staffed by people that work for the Stars. And so Dallas Stars Tournaments is an organization that runs youth and adult league tournaments. So we've partnered with them. Uh, I think this is the fifth year that we've done that. And our tournament now has expanded to 50 teams from across all over the U.S. and some in Canada. And uh, we have public safety and non-public safety divisions and different skill levels within each. So we actually have six divisions for, for male hockey players, and we've added also a female division to this thing. So this thing has really taken off in the six years. It went from 12 teams, and, and this year we're going to be over 50 is what it's looking like. Man, you're brave bringing in Canadian teams too. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And nobody can understand them either. It's just a lot like when he first <laughs> yeah. moved to Texas. 
Exactly. No, it's it's great. And so the way that we've we've done it, we've opened it up too to where we allow rec league teams, adult beer league teams to, to come participate. So you do not have to be a police, fire, or military. We've got a lot of military teams too that participate. You do not have to be police, fire, or military to participate. You can, and that will put you on the public safety side of the tournament. But the non-public safety side is filled with, with beer league teams and rec league teams. And then we have a women's division that uh, stands alone by itself. That is fantastic. And you, you and I obviously know each other, uh, but you had a really special thing happen to you at the tournament a couple of years ago involving a jersey. Uh, so why don't you just explain to us what that was about? Yes. Yeah, so this uh, this tournament, we've done it um, last several years every June. All right. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll go over this year's info here in just a second. But a couple of years ago, back in uh, 2021, there was a Dallas police officer by the name of Mitchell Penton. End of watch was February 13th of 2021, all right? My hockey tournament was in June, okay? And for that year, the team that I play on is uh, basically branded under the Dallas Police Hockey Foundation, so we're all, uh, a lot of guys that work for DPD play on the team. And so we decided to create new jerseys, like a basically a special edition jersey that we were going to auction off. And we it, we had to use fallen Dallas PD officers, uh, and their their badge with their name and their badge number was on the front of the jersey, and on the back was your name with the number that you picked. So I picked Mitchell Penton as my officer to represent because his first name is my last name and so I said you know why not he was the most recently uh, got killed in the line of duty and so I want to do that to support him so I had his name his badge his badge number all in the front of my jersey so in June this tournament this was four months after he got killed in the line of duty I think we just finished our second game of the tournament and I had a gentleman, I, was, I wasn't even in the locker room yet, I was skating off the ice trying to go into the locker room, and I was stopped by a gentleman, and all he said was, I appreciate you wearing my son's jersey, and I was like, hold up, wait, what? And he said, I'm Mitchell Penton's father, and I, I appreciate you wearing his jersey. And I said, oh my gosh, it's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much, you know, for, for letting me know that you're here, you know. And um, it kind of brought it full circle uh, as far as, you know, what the tournament is played for. Now, you know, it's, it's fun. We have fun in games. But it's played for the Guns and Hoses Foundation, which Brent already said in the intro it's a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and our goal is to provide financial assistance to the families of fallen police officers and firefighters. Okay, we cover 19 counties in the North Texas area, and um, we provide financial assistance through fundraisers, through tournaments, fundraisers, things of that nature that we do. Um, and every you know every family that gets that dreaded phone call we are able to step in and provide them a five-figure check for each family that we that we donate to each family. So these fundraisers that we do raise a lot of money. We give each family a, a five five-digit check uh, to cover the expenses and stuff like that, in addition to whatever they get from everybody else. Just the Guns and Hoses Foundation itself provides immediate financial assistance. So when you keep that in mind about what the tournament is for, having this father come up to me and approach me not even knowing who I was or what agency I worked for or whatever, just wanted to thank me for supporting his son and wearing his son's name on the jersey. Uh, really brought it full circle and was just a special, special moment. And what'd you end up doing with that jersey? So the guy that uh, got the jerseys ordered said, we're going to send them to auction. And I was like, we ain't sending this one to auction because I told, <laughs> I told the dad, I said, hey, I got two more games to play and this jersey's yours and you're not going to pay for it. Man, I, I got awesome. you. I got you covered. I will give you the jersey. All right. So he came to each of my next two games, watched. Uh, I took some pictures with him and um, his other son, who's Officer Penton's younger brother. I took pictures with them with the jersey, and then after our last game, I was able to hand the jersey directly off my back, right over to them. That man, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah, it was. It was special. Yeah, and you know, you talk about that that encounter really brought to life the work that you're doing because behind every officer loss there's a family. And I, I just saw a story this week where there was a the widow 
of a fallen officer who just gave birth to their child five months after the officer was killed in the line of duty. That's a lifelong consequence that the family has to live with, not not the kid, but the fact that the husband's not there, or the wife's not there to support them and the work that you do to ease that for them. Man, that that is noble, honorable work right there. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, I enjoy doing it. Uh, it does get very busy at times, especially the closer we get to June, it, it becomes, you know, my, I got, in fact, I have a meeting tomorrow, you know, day two of spring break. I'm <laughs> off all week and I got, you know, meetings with, with gu- uh, guns and hoses about the hockey tournament. And so we're getting this thing really amped up and, you know, communication sent out and stuff like that. If somebody wanted more information about the hockey tournament or the foundation, where, where's the best place for them to go and, and get that information? So if you want more information on the Guns and Hoses Foundation itself, the Guns and Hoses website is gunsandhosesnorthtx.org. That's the foundation's website. It just mentions the hockey tournament, but if you want actual information on our hockey tournament, on how to register, be a part of it, we would love to have as many out-of-town, out-of-state teams as possible. That just continues to grow this thing, and it makes it more fun. I promise you this is a tournament that you do not want to miss. If you are coming in from out-of-town, we will make it worth your while. The tournament this year is June 23rd through the 25th, all right? And the website for the tournament is Dallas Stars Tournaments dot com slash guns hyphen the letter n hyphen hoses so dallastarstournaments.com slash guns and hoses and we'll make things easier we've got both websites we'll put it on the episode page folks can find it easily and you can also find it from dallastarstournaments.com that's the generic website but the the slash guns and hoses specifically uh takes you to our tournaments website and I don't want to make you any busier than what you are, but I sure would like for some 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 teams to sign up and, and just blow this thing up. Maybe we get some European representatives. Maybe get some. You know. You know what? That what was the movie uh, with the Jamaican bobsled team? Yeah, you know the one I'm talking about with John cool Kennedy. There, there, there we go. Yeah. You know, we need some Caribbean representation in, in this hockey tournament right there. Well, I tell you what, we already have. You know, we're still three months from this tournament. We already have a team from Las Vegas, a team from Florida, a team from New York, a team from Kansas, already registered and ready to go. Uh, and I don't even know that was as of like two weeks ago. So. Hey, Michigan teams, okay, they, they don't be outdone by those folks in Florida, for crying out loud. The land of Gators cannot be having more hockey teams at this tournament than what Michigan has. I think our executive producer, Aaron Bevel, wants us to get a uh, between-the-lines team together and uh, road trip. Yeah. Well, hey, come on down. <laughs> I, I'm not sure what, what what side of the tournament they put us in. You no. don't want me on the <laughs> ice. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, well, I tell you what, we made it in June, so fortunately, it's like 105 degrees every day, so you get to spend your time in the ice rink. So yeah. it actually, it actually works out. Do you have a Three Stooges section of this tournament? Because that's probably what we would fit in right there. That, that could be your team name, right? I'll be the Bob Probert. Right, just go. I'm the enforcer. That's what I'll do. There you go. Every, every team needs one. I can't yeah. stand up, but I can lay on my back and fight. Look like a turtle <laughs> on his back. <laughs> hey, but you know, you know what, though? In all seriousness, so we're going to put links to all that stuff on our episode page. Please, folks, the, the cause is just. The fun, though, is real. But uh, it, you get to meet good people like Rick. Uh, but, Rick, as we're closing, goodness knows uh, guys like you are never busy enough. So in addition to all the stuff we talked about so far, you, this, this is not your first rodeo with a podcast. Notice what I did there, Brent rodeo, Texas. I did, yeah, look at you. Tell us about this podcast you do, man. So uh, yeah, as if I'm not busy enough with the kids and work and guns and hoses and all that, I, uh, my infinite wisdom decided it would be a good thing to start my own personal podcast. And what it is, it's, it's a, it's a sports podcast. All right. It's, it's called sports Island. And it's available on all the major platforms, Spotify, Apple. I don't even know where else you'd listen to podcasts <laughs> these days. But it's it's available on both of those. And uh, I'm the only host. Uh, I haven't had any guests. I have 100 and, 
109 or 110 episodes that I've done over the last couple years. And I try to do one a week, you know, these, this last month has been pretty busy, so I haven't really been able to hop on there, but what it is, is just keeps you up to date, brings you all the latest uh, sports information from all the four major pro sports and college sports and the PGA tour. We talk a lot of golf. So it's just, uh, I'm a huge sports fan. That's my primary hobby outside of work. So uh, it's an outlet for me to share all the uh, the news and info that I am, am so plugged into. That has to be a little bit of a stress reliever for you. Just being able to focus on something that you're passionate about, that you enjoy, that has to help with all the other stuff you have going on. Yeah, it takes my mind off of it, you know, and if I'm if I'm not at work, uh, which is very rare these days, but when I'm not at work, I'm, I'm watching sports, I'm listening to sports podcasts, I'm watching games, playing myself, you know, it's just something that I do to, yeah, to take, kind of clear my mind and it, it keeps me busy. Don't get me wrong, but it's, it's a different kind of busy. Absolutely. Well, Rick, as we're wrapping up here, man, I, I want to say thank you for what you do. What, what you do is important. You're important. The fact that you go beyond just the job, and you're, you're so invested that that says a lot about you. And uh, I'm going to give a shout out here. It says a lot about uh, your upbringing. That doesn't surprise me. That doesn't surprise me. Again, folks, go and check out the information on the tournament. You won't be disappointed. You'll have a heck of a good time. Good cause. But thanks for being on here today, man. Yes, sir. I appreciate you both very much for the invite. And uh, it was an honor to sit here and, and talk about what I like to do and, and, our work as, as law enforcement officers. So I appreciate you giving me the platform to, uh, to speak about it. Yeah. We'll put links to all that information in the episode page. And with your permission, we'd love to send out the picture of you handing over that Jersey, if that's okay. Cause I think that'd be a, a great thing for folks to see if that's okay. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I sent it to Mike a while back. So feel free to uh, share that. And in that picture, you'll see Mitchell Penton's father, his brother, and, and of course myself handing the Jersey over to him. All right. Well, you guys can find all that information. It's uh, going to be available on our website, Between the Lines, virtualacademy.com, and you can find it all right there along with uh, all the other episodes. You can find more information about the Guns and Hoses tournament and uh, just some really uh, cool content. We appreciate you being with us uh, today, Rick. Yes, sir. I appreciate you guys very much. Thank you all.